One of the most startling passages in all of Scripture, in my opinion, is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Because in Matthew chapter 10, there is a picture of Jesus, a portrait of Jesus, that in many ways shatters today's popular perspective of him. Turn with me to Matthew 10 before we turn to John chapter 7, and I'll show you what I mean. Turn to the very first gospel account, the very first gospel record, Matthew chapter 10. And look at Jesus' words beginning in verse 34. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now that would have been confusing for the disciples to hear because they were convinced Jesus was the Messiah and they knew all these messianic passages which said that the Messiah would bring peace. And in fact, those of you who have Jewish friends or have talked to Jewish people know that the number one stumbling block for Jewish people today in refusing to believe Jesus was the Messiah is this. If you ask them why you do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, a Jewish person, the answer you'll hear the majority of the time is this, because there is not peace in Jerusalem. There's not peace in Jerusalem. There's not peace in Israel. That is, that is the typical response because Jewish people know that the Messiah will bring peace. That's what is prophesied throughout Hebrew Scripture. The Messiah will bring peace. And so for Jesus to say this, it would have been very confusing. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Therefore, the therefore is not in the text, but this is the conclusion Jesus is drawing. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. These words of Jesus, as I said, shatter today's popular notion of him as someone who did just speak about love and peace and everything flowery and good and those types of things. And yet, here he says that on this mission, at this coming, I did not come to bring peace. Now, of course, we know the end of the story, that in his second coming, he will bring peace. He will come to rule and reign in righteousness, and there will be peace covering the earth. But in the first coming, the result was different. And that is because a person's response to Jesus Christ in his first coming or from his first coming often draws strong lines of demarcation. As you can see from what Jesus says here, there is no room for neutrality. There's no room for complacency. Jesus is the fork in the road that calls for a very definitive decision. So some people decide they will give him their lives and follow him. Others choose to reject him and end up hating him. Jesus doesn't leave room for a casual response. In chapter 12, verse 30 of this gospel, 
Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Jesus draws a hard and fast line between those who follow him and those who reject him, those who love him and those who hate him, those who are for him and those who are against him. He doesn't leave room for neutrality. You can look at his ministry and see that everywhere he went, he drew these sharp, contrasting responses. He almost always left trouble in his wake because there was almost always a divided response to his claims and demands, just as he says here in Matthew 10. We see this illustrated for us in the text to which we come for this message in John chapter 7. So let's turn over from the first gospel to the final gospel record, the fourth gospel record, the gospel of John chapter 7. As we continue our way through John 7, our text for this message will be verses 37 through 52. So please follow along as I read those verses for us. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has risen out of Galilee. A fascinating story from the life and ministry of our Lord. Let's remind ourselves of the context and the setting of these words that we've just read. At this point in Jesus' life and ministry, he is in the city of Jerusalem during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. This particular feast lasted eight days. Each day, for for the first seven days, the priests would lead a procession from the temple to the Pool of Siloam. When they reached the Pool of Siloam, they would draw out water with a golden pitcher. Then they would lead the procession back to the temple through the water gate to the temple altar. During all of this time, the choir would be singing Isaiah 12.3, 
which says, Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. When they reached the altar, they would pour out the water as an offering to God. This was a ritual, this was a ceremony to remind them of the water from the rock which God had provided for their forefathers during the wilderness wanderings. And this was done, as I said, for the first seven days of the festival. The first seven days. But not on the eighth day. The first seven days looked back. But the eighth day looked forward with expectation to the coming of the Messiah. So that's what's taking place at this time during chapter 7 of John's Gospel. For seven days, because we read here in verse 37, on the last day, that would be the eighth day, for seven days, the Jewish people had been reenacting a tradition that could not satisfy their hearts. It is on the eighth day that Jesus steps forward and offers himself as living water. So with that as background and with that running start, notice what John tells us in verse 37. He says, on the last day, this would be the eighth day of the festival, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Notice that Jesus stood. The usual practice of the rabbis was to be seated while they taught. But this is such an important announcement that Jesus breaks with tradition. He stands up and he shouts. The verb here is the same verb used used back in verse 28, translated cried out. So Jesus shouted. Jesus yelled. Whatever term you want to use. He screamed. He hollered. He, He spoke with great emotion and intensity. And he said at the top of his lungs, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. By the way, that is the message of the gospel in a nutshell. To thirst is to recognize your need. You'll never come to Jesus unless you recognize that you need him. You are lost. You are condemned. Your soul is dry and parched. You are dead in sin. And Jesus is the water of life. But just knowing that in and of itself doesn't do any good. Just admitting that doesn't do any good. You have to do something about it. If you were dying out in the desert just one mile from an oasis, it wouldn't do you any good to just know about the oasis. It wouldn't do you any good to merely admit that there is an oasis just over that next sand dune or the next sand hill. No, that wouldn't wouldn't accomplish anything. You have to do something about it. And what is it? Jesus says here, come to me and drink. That is an act of the will. That is a a willful choice, a volitional decision. It's not just mental assent. It doesn't do you any good just to know that Jesus is the water of life if you don't do anything about it. It doesn't do you any good just to admit the fact that Jesus is the water of life if you don't come to him and drink. So Jesus calls for a decision, for an action that involved an act of the will. He's basically saying, recognize your need and commit your life to me. I am the water of life. 
If anyone thirsts, and remember he yelled this, he screamed, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38, he continues this announcement. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice the individual appeal that Jesus calls for in this verse. It's singular. He who believes in me. In contrast to the water that was provided for the nation of Israel as a whole, salvation is an issue that each individual must come to grips with personally. It's he who or everyone who Jesus calls for an individual response of faith instead of just a collective observance of a ritual. When Jesus refers to the Scripture here in verse 38, he says, as the Scripture has said, it's difficult to know exactly which passage he is referring to in Old Testament Scripture. There are three very good possibilities in the book of Isaiah, three text that Jesus may have had in mind. Let me show you them. Go back to Isaiah chapter 44. We'll look at all three of these. Isaiah chapter 44. And maybe this was the passage Jesus had in mind or was referring to. Isaiah 44 verse 3. God says, for I will pour water on him who is, is thirsty. And floods on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. There you have the same picture of water and the spirit being poured out. So maybe this is the text. But it's not the exact wording that Jesus uses. So here's another possibility. Look at Isaiah 55. A few pages over to the right. Isaiah 55 and this, this, one, this one here is, is more in, in line with Jesus' announcement in that it's also an announcement that is obviously a very intense and emotional announcement because it begins, depending on your English translation, with the word ho or behold or listen, get this. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Now here is the imagery of thirsting and coming to drink. There's no mention of the Spirit as there was in the previous passage. So maybe it's this passage or a combination of the two. Or here's one other possibility. Look at chapter 58 of Isaiah. Chapter 58, verse 11 says the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You see, Jesus could have been referring to any of these three passages Or he may have just been summarizing all of them, plus others that he could have been alluding to. 
Many times in the Old Testament, the imagery of water is used to illustrate spiritual life, spiritual truth, vibrancy of life. So Jesus uses this same picture in his announcement in John chapter 7. Now let's go back to our text there in John 7. Notice the last phrase in verse 38. Jesus says in John 7, 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What's the significance of that? What what is the meaning, the implication? The point is this. The living water was given to us to be shared so it would flow out of us. The life of Jesus is to be a living water flowing river which comes out of us, not a stagnant pool that stays in us. I think I lose as much sleep over this issue as any other I can think of in ministry. Christians who are spiritual cul-de-sacs, it's just all, it all just goes in and nothing ever goes out to anybody else. Beloved, God never intended us to be spiritual cul-de-sacs. We are to share our lives with those around us. We offer new life to those who are dead in sin. We offer the the living water to those who are thirsty. And we, we impart a vibrant life by discipling other believers who are new in the family of God or, or who are stagnant in the family of God. Jesus has given us his life, his vibrant life to share with others. Of course, that's where Israel failed. They became so ingrown so stagnant that there was no way they could be a blessing to those around them. So they missed God's purpose for them. God wants his people to be rivers, not stagnant pools. And he's given us the resource to be that way. Verse 39, John adds this editorial note so that we understand what Jesus was referring to. He says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing or those who have believed in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It wasn't until after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that the Holy Spirit was given to permanently indwell the believer. That took place on the day of Pentecost when the church was born, when the Spirit of God descended and came. On that day, the Holy Spirit of God came to permanently indwell all those who had believed. So John tells us that he is the source that feeds this river of life within us that is supposed to flow through us and to other people. When we are properly related to him and drawing from him, then we will be a river and not a stagnant pool. One other thing before we leave verse 39. Notice, please, who it is that Jesus said would receive the Holy Spirit or John in his editorial comment. He says, those who believe in him. It's believers. All believers. Now, what's the point? It's, it's like I'm stressing the obvious. Well, I'm, I am stressing the obvious because some groups within Christianity, many groups within Christianity, teach that only super spiritual Christians who speak in tongues have the Holy Spirit. A very pervasive doctrine, false doctrine. But the Scripture teaches that all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then that man doesn't even belong to Christ. 
It's, utter, it's an utter impossibility to be a believer who doesn't possess the Holy Spirit. Since the completion of the canon of Scripture, there's been no such thing as a Christian who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And here in verses 37 through 39, Jesus offers himself as the water of life, and he makes reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is a monumental announcement. No wonder Jesus stood up and cried out, yelled out to make this announcement. So what was the response to Jesus' claims, Jesus' announcement? Well, it's the common result. Division. Division. That's what we see here. Look at verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Now, what are they talking about? The prophet is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said that one day a prophet would come to the people of Israel like him. That particular passage, if you go back and study it, that passage is a reference to the Messiah, clearly. But not all the Jews took it that way. Some took it as a different, a distinct prophet, a very important prophet, but not the Messiah. Some tried to draw a distinction between the prophet and the Messiah, and that's what we see here in this passage. Verse 41, others said, no, this is the Christ. See, they're making a distinction when there really is no distinction from Deuteronomy 18. But some said, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? So John lets us know there were some in the crowd who were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed, but others tried to talk them out of it by saying, no, he couldn't be the Messiah. Jesus was born in Galilee. He's a Galilean, verse 42. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? And of course, that's true. What they were saying here was true. Micah 5.2 specifically said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was born. But what they failed to realize, the crowd failed to realize, was that Jesus was exactly what they said, from the seed of David, and he was from the town of Bethlehem. But the crowd willingly overlooked those facts. Listen, if they had really been interested, they could have just asked Jesus, where where were you born? Or they could have just done a little inquiry, a little research to find out. But here's the problem. They didn't really want to know. They didn't want to know. They, they wanted to remain ignorant so they could use that as an excuse for re- rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. This is just like so many people today who try to throw up intellectual arguments to justify their rejection of Jesus even though they've never taken the time to investigate any of those arguments that they throw up. They don't check it out. They don't research it. They don't look into it because... They're really not interested in knowing the truth. Now, of course, not all are like that. There are people who have legitimate questions, and those are the kind of people with whom we should spend time and interact. So there are people that have legitimate questions, but there are many who just try to throw up things as sort of a straw man to keep the issue away from what the real issue is, which is their heart and their unwillingness to turn to Christ. That's what was taking place here in verses 41 and 42. They could have found out what the truth was. They could have found out these two facts. Are you from Bethlehem? Are you from the seed of David? All that was verifiable. 
So then John adds this footnote in verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of him. As we saw at the outset of the message, this is almost always what happens when a group of people are confronted with what to do with Jesus. Jesus draws this strong line of demarcation. He splits groups right down the middle. This happens again over in chapter 9. Just turn over a couple pages, chapter 9, verse 16. John tells us, Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. This happens again in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 19. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon. And he's insane. He's mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see, this is a very common response because Jesus did not really leave room for neutrality when it comes to deciding your opinion of him. Neutrality was not an option. He didn't leave any room for that because of the astounding claims he made over and over again in John's gospel. He claimed to have been with the Father in eternity past. He claimed absolute equality with God the Father. He claimed sinless perfection. He claimed to have been sent to the earth by the Father. He claimed to have been always pleasing to the Father. He claimed to be the only source of eternal life. He claimed to be the judge of the universe. He claimed to be the water of life. He claimed to be the bread of life. He claimed to be the one who determines man's, men's and women's eternal destiny. He claimed to be the light of God. He claimed to be the Messiah of God. He claimed to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And that's only through the first seven chapters of John's gospel. All of those claims come out of the first seven chapters. Not to mention all the other claims he makes throughout the rest of this gospel. What are you going to do with those kinds of claims? Well, you either fall on your knees before him and give him your life, or, as we just read in some of these passages, you come to the conclusion that he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Those are really the only options. And that is why Jesus often left division in his wake as we see in chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10. Now back to our text there in chapter 7, where again we see Jesus causing this controversy. Verse 44 says, Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. This is the third text in a row here in John 7 where we have seen this concept of the divine timetable of God and God's sovereign control over the fulfillment of his timetable. The point is this. There, there was no way these people could murder Jesus at this point because according to God's timetable, he had six months left to carry out the Father's work and he was going to die on Passover, not during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was going to be at Passover. Back in verse 30, John mentioned this thought. Back in verse 30, it reads this way. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
No one laid a hand on him because the father's hand was covering him. But they tried over and over again throughout his ministry. Every time they were thwarted by the sovereignty of God, so they always returned empty-handed. And so in verse 45, we read, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Now before we answer that obvious, the question with an obvious answer, there's a fascinating feature of this verse that is missed if you read it quickly, too quickly, and if you don't understand some of the historical background of this time. The high priest, the chief priests, belong to the party known as the Sadducees. So this coalition, if you read this verse carefully, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees. That's the coalition. Chief priests and Pharisees. This coalition was sent by both Pharisees and Sadducees. The interesting thing about that is that there was major animosity between these two groups. They didn't like each other at all. They couldn't agree on anything. They couldn't get along to save their lives. But in spite of their differences in doctrine, there's one thing they could agree on. They both hated Jesus. They both wanted to get rid of Jesus. So back in verse 32, which would have been four days prior, they sent out a group of officers to apprehend Jesus. Think about that. Here's Jesus there in plain view, and for four days they've been trying to seize him, but they have been providentially hindered by the sovereignty of God because it wasn't his time. In verse 46, when they asked this question, they're asked this question, the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. There's a sense in which that doesn't answer the question. Why haven't you brought him? Well, they tried, but they couldn't. But their response was, no man ever spoke like this man. Not only were these officers divinely and providentially hindered from apprehending Jesus, they were also beginning to be moved by Jesus and influenced by Jesus. You could say it this way, they had been sent to arrest Jesus, but they ended up being arrested by the Word of God. And the amazing thing to me about this as I read it is that they admitted it. They wouldn't have had to admit it. They, they could have made excuses by saying that they didn't, res- they didn't arrest Jesus because they feared a riot or any other excuse. They could have come up with all kinds of excuses, but they didn't. They admitted why they hadn't taken him, that Jesus had an impact on them. In fact, in the original language, the emphasis is on the word man. No man ever spoke like this. They were implying that Jesus was more than just a mere man. He wasn't, he wasn't any other man. And that made the Pharisees irate. Verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Are you deceived? What what irony is in that statement? The self-deceived Pharisees were trying to put down the officers who were beginning to be open to the truth. And they continued pressing the point. Verse 48, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? This remark shows just how much they were stuck on themselves. 
What they were saying was basically this. If we, the spiritual elite, haven't believed in him, how could you even be open to listening to what this man has to say? No one can be right except us. That's basically what they were claiming. And in the next verse, their arrogant and condescending spirit comes through even more. Verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The ironic thing about this accusation is that the Pharisees were the ones who really didn't know the law of God because they had twisted it so much with all their traditions and all of their added legalistic requirements. And they were the ones who were accursed because of their rejection of Jesus and their hatred of Jesus. In fact, a few months after this time, Jesus is going to tell them just how accursed they are. Go back to Matthew's Gospel for just a moment, chapter 23, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Look at chapter 23, verse 13. You probably are familiar with this passage. This is later. This is months later, much closer to Jesus' death. And Jesus leaves them with this blistering indictment. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 13, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering and to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. You fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And you also say, whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. You fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all unclean. Even so, you also appear outwardly righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? That is the strongest language Jesus ever used. And he used it for the Pharisees. Their legalism, their refusal 
to embrace the truth, unleashed his wrath and condemnation. And yet over in John 7, in our text, it was the Pharisees who had the nerve to say that the common people were condemned because they were open to Jesus. And they were interested in Jesus. Now back there to John chapter 7. So the Pharisees reprimand the officers for not arresting Jesus. But in the midst of all of this, one of their own, one of their number begins to stand up for Jesus. Verse 50 tells us, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Now get the picture here. The Pharisees were accusing the people of not knowing the law, but Nicodemus points out the fact that they were the ones ignoring the law with their scheme to kill Jesus. He reminds them that they were not abiding by the teaching of the law that required a fair hearing for every man. So Nicodemus tries to stick up for Jesus at this point. It's difficult to know for sure just when Nicodemus finally gave his heart to the Lord. Early in the ministry of Jesus, back in chapter 3, you will remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. In fact, John mentions it here in this text. And Jesus told him he needed to be born again. He'd never see the kingdom unless he was born again. And we know by the end of John's gospel, Nicodemus has stepped forward, stepped out in the open, and identifies himself as a follower of the Lord Jesus. But at this point, it's hard to say just where he stands spiritually. His opinion of Jesus is obviously positive at this point, or at least protective, like we need to hear him out, or else he wouldn't even bother defending Jesus. But it doesn't seem that he has crossed over to the point of unashamed devotion to Jesus just yet. But even this slight defense of Jesus receives a strong rebuke from the Pharisees. Verse 52, they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. The Pharisees are so blinded by their legalism and so angry with Jesus that they fly off the handle and insult Nicodemus, who was the, according to chapter 3, the respected teacher of the nation. It's interesting that the worst put-down they can think of is to accuse Nicodemus of being from Galilee. That ought to tell you how they felt about Jesus spending so much time in Galilee. And the disciples of Jesus, 11 of the 12, were from Galilee, the only exception, Judas Iscariot. Their hatred of Jesus is so strong that they are completely illogical at this point. They make the assertion that no prophet had ever arisen out of Galilee. That wasn't true. That wasn't true at all because Jonah had come from the area of Galilee. It's also possible that Nahum had come from Galilee. It's possible that Hosea had come from Galilee. But they chose to willingly ignore those facts. Their attitude was basically, hey, listen, don't confuse us with the facts. Our mind is made up. We don't want the life Jesus gives. We don't want it. So they basically refused the water of life Jesus offered back in verse 37. Very early in Jesus' ministry, he offered water, the water of life, to a woman at Jacob's well. 
You remember that story from chapter 4 of John's Gospel. So early on, he offers the water of life to a woman at, at the well. He makes this same offer just six months before the end of his life in ministry. So he makes it at the beginning. About three years later, he makes the same offer. And then catch this. Even after he went back to heaven, he shouted out the same offer one more time. And it's found in Revelation 22. Let's turn there as we close. Revelation chapter 22. Over at the very end of your Bible, the very last book, the very last chapter, and notice this offer from Jesus. Verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Here we go. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus offered the water of life at the beginning of his ministry. He offered the water of life at the end of his ministry. And he offered the water of life from heaven when he was seated at the right hand of the Father. Are you thirsty? Do you recognize your need? Is your soul parched? If so, come to Jesus and he will give you the water of life. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, what a blessed promise from the Lord Jesus. The same one he gave to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Same one he offered at that great feast of tabernacles in John 7. The same offer here in Revelation 22. It's the same thing. It's consistent all the way through. through. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And Father, I know I speak for those of us here in this crowd who have come to Jesus. We acknowledge that it was you who made us aware of our need. It was you who caused us to see our need, to make us aware of just how dry and thirsty our souls were. We give you thanks for bringing us, pushing us, drawing us to the Lord Jesus to have our thirst satisfied. And we pray that for friends, family members, roommates, teammates, classmates, people around us who are thirsty, but maybe they don't recognize their thirst, who need the water of life, the water that only Jesus can give. May your Holy Spirit draw them, create with them a thirst, a thirst that, can be sati- that, that cannot be satisfied with anything in this world, anything in this life so that they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the water of life. We pray in his precious name. Amen.